Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. You know, I have been trying to get this guy on my podcast for a couple of years now, and he's been playing hard to get, which is not what he did in the past because (laughs) he and I had a, a fling that was just so fabulous. You know, in those days, you could have a fling with someone, not be madly in love, but love them, you know? It seems like you can't do that anymore. But Howard and I had a really fabulous time together in all kinds of ways. And I didn't, maybe I shouldn't say this, but he has a great smell. You you know how pheromones, you know, you're very attracted by scent, at least I am. Anyway, he had had the most attractive scent. So that really enhanced our relationship. (laughs) Anyway, Howard Kalen was in the Turtles. Well, founder, obviously, he 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 is he and Mark Volman were the Turtles. They had huge hits. They were uh, one of the first bands to promote Dylan in this world. You know, they they them and the Birds, and actually Sonny and Cher were very early with the Dylan songs, and they really helped propel him into the atmosphere, <laughs> stratosphere, actually. Anyway, Howard Kalen is my guest today. He also was in the Mothers of Invention as as he and Mark as Flo and Eddie. And they that career was incredible too. They actually sing on Hungry Heart. They were on both, uh, they were backup singers on both uh, T-Rex albums. He's got an incredible history. So anyway, I, I'm very happy to announce Howard Kalen today. Great storyteller, Pamela. So I, I trust this will be a wonderful journey. Well, you are the storyteller, Howard Kalen. Uh, you know what? I told my stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, to whom? You've never, well, I know some I of them. I told my story to, you know, to a book anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that was painful enough, God knows. Um, how, how did you like writing a book? I mean, 
about yourself? Was it easier or hard or, or uh, well, I certainly, I certainly wish I had more interesting characters to write about. Um, but as far as my own journey goes, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was very cathartic. Uh, good, it good. left me feeling, it left me feeling, uh, empty a lot because, mm -hmm. uh, writing about something uh non-fiction that i couldn't change yeah you yeah. know and, and yeah. things that happened in the past especially things that make you go oh geez what could <laughs> i possibly have been thinking and then you know somebody somebody else will look at the story and go well well you were young no i really wasn't you know i should have figured out life by the time i don't know hit 30 um, well, men, you know, you know, just stayed a little, takes them a little longer, I think, than women, don't you? I, I don't believe that for a minute. I just think <laughs> they they do it in different ways. Okay. You know, they may uh, they may be more mature than you think, but it certainly is internal. I feel that every young guy has an inner uh, Fred Savage in him. Uh, well, that may be too literal for a lot. But uh, just, you know, an inner voice that is doing a monologue just like the Goldbergs or any one of these uh, sitcom shows do. You know, mm -hmm. there's an inner monologue for every kid about to um, graduate up into college. You know, he's hearing things in his head just as clearly as if it were Kimmy Schmidt talking to him, you know. And, and his what are those things? What are those kinds of things? Those are the kind of things that guys usually just keep in the back of their heads, you know, just mm -hmm. uh, how am I going to look cool tonight? You know, what can I bring to the party? All this crap that doesn't mean anything to a human. But when you're a kid, it's everything. Yeah, you know, that's true. when your that's parents true. when your parents don't listen to you, little things like that. And you sit around the table, especially during these covid days. Yeah. You know, and instead oh, of, of becoming the Waltons, the family just seems to be pushing itself to the boundaries of, of insanity every it's day. It's a crazy time. It is a crazy time. It's, it's a beyond time. crazy time. It's, it's yeah. yeah. Let's not go there. Let's go way back to the Ooh. crossfires. I want to go all the way back. I want to ask you what made you want to be a, you know, a musician? What made you write a song what made you want to do all that i think early on in my life i realized uh i really didn't have a talent for anything else at all <laughs> you know i was not particularly coordinated uh this was not a face that was going to launch a thousand ships and and so it was interesting going through high school you know, with only that Fred Savage guy telling you, you're all right, you can do this. And everybody else going, nah, not so much. You know, yeah. high school was interesting. I mean, I, I did better with the teachers than I did with the students. Hmm. Something I've carried into life. And what you mean, you you connected with them more? Uh, certainly. I mean, I could actually speak to them more openly. Right. You know, the kids were all about, you know, adolescence yeah, that was just ridiculous to me i mean i was in into adolescence as well but only on sort of a pop record level you know <laughs> like the sort of adolescence that was promised to a generation before us the frankie and annette stuff yes that, yes that was attractive to me but you know we lived like three blocks from the ocean yeah. so 
my reality was I would see the actual people who were down there at the beach, you know, <laughs> and not the son of Robert Mitchum necessarily, but actual people. Yeah. And, uh, and you just go, well, life sure ain't art. You know, this, this ain't beach blanket bingo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the best part about living near the beach was that after lunch, nobody came back. Yeah. Nobody ever came back to school. So that was it. You had your third period, your fourth period, and then beach time. Oh, because everybody wow. scheduled all their electives after lunch. Oh. It's kind of idyllic, really, if you think about it. The, the time frame we both grew up in, people are still, you know, I do these rock and roll tours all around Laurel Canyon and Hollywood. And, you know, they're just their jaws drop when I just say, yeah, I did this. I did that. This is where that happened. They still can't believe the lives that we lived, you know. It is amazing. You couldn't it, have written it because no. it sounds too made up. Yeah. It just sounds too good. What do you mean you parted with that guy? But that guy was Lester Chambers. I know. I, I know. <laughs> Isn't it great? You know, I, know. I feel I feel it too. You know, yeah. I, I've always said, you know this, that you've got, in my opinion, you've got to be a fan before you could be a rock guy at all if you're not yeah. a fan that means you're yep. not taking in all the music around you and you're not yes. you know not that you have to read the pulse of the nation right. but it helps if you know you know which end is up yes all the people that i know including you of course were fans of all different kinds of things uh, big fans so of course it would make you want to jump into that pool right <laughs> which you did well it did it did especially knowing that the pool at the time anyway was huge and you <laughs> didn't have to you didn't have to do surf music to make it just because right. you lived in a surf city yeah. you could do other stuff you could do perish the thought comedy you know yeah. <laughs> and, and mark and i were always doing comedy uh whether we liked it or not you know the two of us grew up sharing a love of like Stan Freeberg and Louis Prima mm -hmm. and greats that came before us, you know, certainly I, I wouldn't even want to be mentioned in the same breath as some of those brilliant people. We were just guys that went, Oh my Lord, this is, you know, show business. Yeah. You know, that's the part of it that we really liked. And that's the part of it that, that really got me thinking too at the at the age of 10 years old when my parents drove my brother and myself across the country in the back of a 1951 Chevy with no air conditioning through mm -hmm. Yuma Arizona taking the southern route because it was prettier <laughs> uh it was it, that part was not an excellent part it wasn't particularly idyllic in my <laughs> life um but I, you know, what I did have, even even with my brother screaming and my, you know, my mother doing what she did, which you know was being a mother, and my dad trying to ignore everything, which you know most dads do, in my experience. Um, Back then, know, anyway. I, yeah, I saw a beacon in the darkness, and the beacon, way early on, at the age of like ten years old, was uh, a radio station called KDAY. Hey day. Hey day, right? Loved it. 1580 on the dial. Yeah. AM, AM radio kids. And and I loved it. There wasn't anything like it. I'd never heard anything like it. My parents had raised me to, you know, to think that progressive pop radio meant, ooh, an up-tempo Tony Bennett song. Right. <laughs> right. 
right? Which I still understand and love, but that's not that's not where I was coming from. You know, when I heard, I don't know, just the the anybody, the Olympics. When you hear the Olympics on the radio and you're a kid, you just go, holy crap, my baby loved the Western movies. <laughs> yes, that's now, right. My parents would never let me even say that sentence. My baby loved the Western movies. They would go, you know, wash your mouth out with something and come back to the table when you make some sense. <laughs> I was but a doo-wop I, girl. I loved Dion, man. Oh, well, he's still the, one of the I best singers that ever lived. I still love Dion. You know, I fly across the country. I have tickets for July in Connecticut. See, Dion, I will go anywhere. Last place I saw him was Jersey. I'll get on a plane, go see him sing. He's 81. He's I know. He really is. He's fantastic. You know, the, the people that don't, they can listen to him and not understand the finesse that mm. it takes mm. to do what he does. Oh. You know, the, skill, the skill that makes uh, Dion DiMucci truly, mm. you know, equal to Frank Sinatra in oh, his totally. field. Yeah. You know, he, he invented a new way to be casual about the insanity of adolescence. Yes, you know? to be cool. He, he, he kind to of grew cool. it. He kind of grew it up a little yeah. bit, took it yes. into its romantic adolescent phase and took it out of the happy days jukebox crap. He gave it grace and dignity and and just... God, I could go, you know, I always think I have the best taste because all my friends like the other, you know, Bobby Rydell, who's a very good singer too, and Avalon and Fabian and stuff. But Dion, there's no comparison. No, and there's he, no comparison. And he wrote his songs. No one was doing that then, which is yeah. just the coolest ever. I'm glad he, he loves just, Dion he didn't together. just write the songs. He wrote songs that were groundbreaking, that, that weren't, Formula A, B, A, B, chorus, rock songs. Mm. You know, he took it out of the Lieber and Stoller drill building kind of stuff and, and brought it closer to home. So real people, kids could identify with it. And the words made sense on a cellular level. You yeah. know, it wasn't it wasn't some 55-year-old 50, uh, guy in an office smoking a cigar yeah. trying to imagine what a teenage girl in an Angora sweater is going to be dancing <laughs> to this summer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and if those fat cats are still there. If you think about it, he's still performing it at 81. And those songs sound as fresh as ever. Love came to me. I just It just kills me every time I hear it. I have to pull over the car if it comes on. And yeah. and and if you think about, I'm not being rude, but you know, some of the people today who are 21, 22 doing this, you think people are going to be listening to them at 80? I don't know. Maybe. Well, it's doubtful. I'm sure they're going to say, "Oh, hell yes!" You know, this music will always survive. Yes, yes you know, I guess so. I, I don't want to be an old fogey. <laughs> no, of course not. But every generation, of course, thinks their music is it. You know, and and maybe 20 years from now. They'll be on the dance floor, you know, and somebody will put on a, a you know, a, a Jesse J record and everybody will go, oh, yes. Remember those good times we had? Yeah. And we didn't. So. <laughs> but will Jesse J still be performing? This is the question. No, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether Debbie Gibson is still performing, you know, in the ether, she'll always be performing. That's correct. 
I love that, Howard. I love that. That's so true. You know, well, nobody, music... nobody ever goes away. Nothing ever yeah. really dies. Lincoln Park. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and music it, is it's all true. It's all everything that everybody has ever told you is all true. So what are you going to do now? You're going to cl close your mind, relax, and float downstream, <laughs> or you're going to go to a club and drop some Molly and dance. It's your choice. I mean, everybody has the same choice to make, whether you're 17 or 75. Well, I want to talk about more about you because you are here with me today, Howard Kalin, and I'm so thrilled. You know, for those of you who don't know, Howard and I had a relationship and it was a, a really lovely one. And it, it was. was. It was a really great part of, uh, of growing up. I yeah. Think, How old were we? 20... One? I was I was like uh, I was like I think I was like 23 24 yeah I remember we were still saying lines and the mother's like oh get away from Frank he's 30 let's buy him a watch <laughs> That's right. uh Howard for those of you who don't know it was also he's also Flo and Eddie and 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 on the, the Zappa records my favorite is the Fillmore Live thing it's so genius so genius and of course, 200 Motels just came out that I did the liner notes for that I tried to get Howard to talk to me, but alas, it didn't happen. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right over the hill here. I'm, I'm in Palm Springs. It's, uh, it's exceptionally close to, to where all of, of, of life started for me in L.A. So I feel that, you know, this is a circular thing I've done here, returning sort of uh, to the West Coast in Seattle. I lived in Seattle for 16 years. Yeah, I know. And I loved it. I still love it. It's still like my favorite adopted city. But there's something cool about Palm Springs in the great old showbiz tradition of ring-a-ding-ding. -ding. Oh, yeah. And what this town represented to me always growing up um, since watching I Love Lucy you know, when Lucy and Ricky <laughs> yes. went to Palm Springs, yeah. it was always a good show. It was always <laughs> going to be great because they were bringing in guest stars, heavy hitters, yeah. golf friends of Desi's. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. I love that show, too. Love, love. you know, we, have the, we grew up in the same time frame and and it's a wonderful, you know, you know, we're we're almost gone. Let's face it. There's not going to be many boomers in about 10 or 15 years. Hey, there are mornings when I wake up pinching myself just to make sure I'm still here, you know, but I'm sure there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot younger people than we that are doing that stuff daily too, you know, probably for the wrong reasons, you know, you shouldn't be pinching yourself. If you're awake, get up. Yes. Get up and do it. Well, yeah. Get up and do it. Especially post COVID. I stay very busy, but you told me you, you, certainly you, uh, you're retired. Well, that's a that's a great word. I've, I've looked forward to using that word ever since I saw uh, William Bendix in the life of Riley. Um, I, I've always been retired. I oh. mean, I, I was retired in high school. I knew that my occupational challenge would be getting to retirement from the age of 18 on. I mean, you know, we were beach kids. We were really spoiled, you know, the most thinking I had to do was how to or how I should funnel my allowance money to buy enough chips to take down to the beach. <laughs> yes, well, I was saving up for 45s. 
uh, the, the receiver record rack on Sherman Way was my go-to when I was 45. That yeah. was amazing. Sadly, <laughs> I was kind of a, a sticky-fingered kid. Mm. Oh, growing up, and you regret that. My, most, I do. I regret it. Not particularly. No. <laughs> uh, I got really good at it. In oh. fact, I thought I was great. I thought I was. I thought I had it down. I thought I had it down. I thought no one. No one would think it was the least bit suspicious if I entered the record store and was browsing through the 45s with, oh, I don't know, a folded up newspaper, perhaps, or a briefcase. <laughs> I was 10. Oh, you started that early. Wow. I, I had I to I have, you know, yeah. I didn't have anything, you know, but I knew from listening to KDAY, the right. AM Soul station in Los Angeles. Um, which preceded uh, all the rest of the all rock All the rest station. of them. Did, did you listen to Tom Clay? Do you remember him? He was a I DJ. do remember him. Oh, I, I listened God. to everybody. I listened to Dick Hug, Huggy Boy. I listened yes, to yes. And also, at night, we were privileged in the L.A. area to receive XERB mm. radio coming up from the California-Mexico border. And there okay. was our good friend Wolfman Jack. Oh right, right. I, I didn't. I didn't Wolfman. listen to that. I didn't know about it. Oh, I loved the mm. Wolfman. He was playing stuff that nobody else had heard, particularly in California. I mean, it was Old blues know, stuff, right? That blues right? stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's even, so important. Even new records that were slow to get to the West Coast, things mm. like Wooly Bully. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> Sam. You know that kind of stuff. Uh, Wolfman was the first guy to break some of those artists, some of the, the white artists that were going to cross over into the pop charts with garage sounding records. Yeah, yeah. But the first time I ever heard Wooly Bully, it was on Sam's show. <laughs> and we did Sam's show a million times and oh. Midnight Special. So he had a beautiful studio set up in his house. Wow, cool. And when you came over to do the interview, Wolf Woman, would make you sandwiches, and uh, they had a great relationship, the two of them. Where and was the house? The house was in the hills of, I want to say, Jesus, Pasadena or something. It wasn't wasn't my neck of the woods, so you know, forgive me. And did I didn't you, drive. So did you grow up in the valley like I did? I did not. I grew you, up you were on in the, the Westchester, right? Was that west side of L.A., right, right, West right. L.A., nine zero zero four five zip code. Okay. Uh, so we were yeah. right, you know, Westchester, Playa del Rey. Now the whole right. thing is called right. Silicon Beach. Such a great Silicon place. Silicon Beach. Give me a fucking break. Yeah. Silicon Beach. Don't call it that. Don't call it that. <laughs> Play the ray, you go down to the yeah. water, you turn oh, left, you're El Segundo, way. you turn right, and you're yes, toes over at Balboa Creek. It was yeah. all surfing then. Yeah. You know, if, if the Beatles hadn't come along, everybody would have been surfing in California. Still. Still. And the Beach Boys would have actually been the Beatles. <laughs> the Beach Boys had enough trouble just being the Beach Boys, you know, but I think they eclipsed the Beatles in many ways. You know, I'm sure there are there are critics and, and arguers that would, you know, go at me tooth and nail. I'm not Christopher Hitchens about this, but I will say that, you know, listen to Pet Sounds again. 
Oh, I love it. Love it. Love Whenever it. you think you know what rock and roll is or what the so-called British invasion did, uh, are you sleeping, Brother John, from Surf's Up? Uh, you know, there was a beautiful little um, friendly persuasion that was going on uh, between Brian Wilson and John Lennon at the oh, time. Sure. And it was so great to hear both of them communicate through vinyl. Through, through vinyl. Yeah. And Dylan, there was this, yeah. all this one up stuff. And, and when Dylan started saying important things, you know this because you guys helped break Dylan in this world. Um, you know, everybody started thinking higher thoughts, you know, and the music got better and better. I, I think it's a, the Beatles, the Beach Boys and Dylan, you know. Well, you certainly about that. I mean, and John Lennon, uh, he did everything. If he could have purchased one of Dylan's original caps, he would have. <laughs> that guy, you know, that guy, he, he wanted have. to. He wanted to smell like Bob, you know, and I'm sure by the time he got to Amsterdam, he damn well did. That is so funny, Howard. I've never heard anyone put it that way. Well, you know, there's a lot of Dylan in, in John's stuff, particularly his solo stuff, you know, which is beautiful to hear the plastic yeah. Ono band stuff. Yeah. yeah. Stuff where he's just letting it all go. You know, yeah. I, I want to punch him because uh, I know what he did to, to Harry Nilsson. Um, uh, in the Pussycats era and how that the screaming contest led pretty much to Harry losing his chops totally. I don't I don't I don't know that story. Um, oh, man. I went to that session, the Pussycats session with Keith Moon. And he, when he introduced me to John, he was on the Kotex on the head phase. Very, very bad phase. And exactly he said, right. Yeah. Troubadour time. That Smothers Brothers show became so infamous. Yes, yes, exactly. And then he became, John became so close to Tommy Smothers. It was like, you know, did you have to like take it out into the schoolyard first and now yes. you're besties forever? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was one of those things, you know, but that was an unfortunate thing for the brothers because yeah, they, yeah. they wanted to be Beatle people, too. Yeah, and I know that was a really rough thing. Apparently, John sent, filled their dressing room with flowers the next day. So he was very... Uh, yeah, well, that's... Well, sorry he did that naughty thing. Okay, well, it's, I guess it's better to realize what you did rather than to just, you know, turn yeah. the page and move yeah, on. exactly. Thinking you didn't affect any other lives. Yeah. But Lennon knew, yeah. Lennon knew exactly what he was doing and he knew who he was affecting and he knew what buttons to push. Yeah, you know, he was a very smart man and it didn't <laughs> take him more than a couple of seconds to suss you out. Yep. Oh, well, when, when Keith introduced us, he said, Pamela, this is John, John, Pamela. And he looked me up and down and said, Pamela, John, John, Pamela, Pamela, John, John, Pamela, Pamela, John, John, <laughs> Pamela. Endlessly. It was so sad and embarrassing. And I and I felt bad. Ringo was that. there, and he was nice because I knew him from two hundred motels. He was very pleasant, but yeah, it was. I was at that session one night. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah, well, there's you know sometimes there's just no excusing it. I remember yes. people telling me telling me stories, uh, Buddy Rich stories, famous stories mm -hmm. about how rude Buddy was not only to his band but to his fans. I mean, oh. he just had no time. There was no oh. time, you know, 
I could be busy practicing. I don't need to be talking to this dipshit. Okay, it's that buddy. But you know, he bought he bought everything you did and signed first editions. He paid for the VIP show. All he wanted to do was to shake your hand after the set. And you you told him to do what? (laughs) And it only takes two seconds. Come on. There's so much more to say, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back, dolls. All right, we're back. Does well, buddy know I want to go back. I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to talk about you. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Buddy um, Rich, though. Did, did, <laughs> did you and Howard go to school together? I mean, Mark. <laughs> did you and Mark uh, go to school together? I, I almost went to school with Howard Daly. <laughs> um, but with Mark, yeah, we went to high school together. And oh, okay. we were just the, the polar opposites. Um, we wouldn't have even known each other at all had it not been for acapella choir. Oh, acapella choir. They stood us next to each other. I was a second tenor and Mark was a first tenor, uh, his voice slightly higher than mine. Mm-hmm. And we were reading off the same sheet music. And it was ridiculous because we thought the songs were stupid. They were in Latin. And uh, it was real serious sight reading stuff. And the teacher, who was brilliant, who I credit my entire uh, career to, uh, Mr. Robert Wood at Westchester High School. I'm sure he's no longer there. He retired many years ago, but he was inspirational. He was so great. And I say this full well knowing that he let us get away with murder, particularly me. I was an A student, and he knew that the only reason that I was messing around in class at all was because he had placed me next to Mark. Oh. You know, and Mark, Mark was a kind of a troublemaker in school. He wasn't a great student, and uh, he was the class clown. Okay, that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and he wore the title like a crown. <laughs> you rhymed it. That's great. <laughs> Didn't mean to. Um, but he did. He loved it. He loved his title, you know, and, and with every class, as he got closer and closer to matriculation, um, he got bolder, you know, he wanted to be the school clown. It wasn't enough to be the class. clown. (laughs) So uh, I was already in a band, Al and, and Chuck and I, and Don Murray, our drummer from Inglewood high school, I had already started a band and we had been playing at parties and Mark had come to some of the performances that we did Mm -hmm. as the crossfires. Right. And uh, he said, my God, this is great. You guys had such fun on stage. One day during choir practice, he asked if I would ask everybody else in the band, if he could join the group. And I said, well, sure. I'll ask. It's it's no skin off my nose. Uh, But what is it exactly that you do? And he said, well, I don't do anything. I said, okay, I'll I'll tell Al. So at lunch that day, or the next day, um, I approached Al in the the courtyard there, and I said, uh, hey, Al, you know this kid, uh, Mark Volman? Yeah, I know who he is. Uh, Well, he wants to join the band. Cool, what's he do? Well, nothing. (laughs) Well, cool, have him come to the rehearsal later. So he came to the rehearsal later and he was better than his word. 
he did less than nothing. Because oh. he really didn't know any of the songs and he didn't really play an instrument. And uh, he was he was funny because he was dropping tambourines all over the place and yeah. spinning around the stage like a madman. <laughs> and we looked at him and said, well, you know, there's something here. We don't know what it is, but there's something here. And when we figure it out, you know, it'll be great. In the meantime, perhaps we've got, uh, you know, Zippy the Chimp with us, but at least, you know, it's amusing. And maybe yeah. it'll help us get some gigs. So... Mark joined the band and he learned the dirty words to what I say and uh, anything he had to do to appease the surf crowd who wanted him to be that crazy guy. Right. Roasting a pig on the beach kind of a kid. And uh, and it stayed that way. Status quo in the crossfires for quite a long time uh, until one day Mark's father. Joe figured out that Mark really wasn't making any money and we all were it wasn't big but it was money and we had already figured out the split long before we met Mark so you know he wasn't really getting any part of it and he didn't care but his father did Mm. yeah so we said listen Mr. Volman Mark doesn't really do anything if he did something then we would pay him. You know, I was at least playing sax. I had a tenor sax and I was yeah. doing solos and we were all doing steps oh. Dale and the deltones. Yes, yes. Um, so then I went down with Mark and his father the following day to downtown Los Angeles to the Diamond District and wound up buying a, a saxophone that just fell off a truck. So he got a good deal. And then he had this uh, saxophone. He got an alto sax. So it was pretty good. We sounded great when we played together. You know, we could do all of these cool arrangements and we could do stupid songs to amuse the crowd, like tequila and stuff that they they were familiar with. Saxophones, you could do anything. You could play (laughs) coaster songs if you had a saxophone. Yeah. That part was great. And we finally started paying Mark. And everybody was happier. Happy when did band, you start happy singing life. together? Well, we were singing just those stupid r and yeah. Not that the songs were stupid, but we certainly were. Yeah. And we didn't know half of what we were singing anyway. But we did have the advantage at the time of knowing that just across Airport Boulevard, from where we were, there was a bowling alley called the Carolina Pines. Mm. And in the lounge of the bowling alley to the Carolina Pines, there was an act called Ike and Tina Turner. (laughs) So in high school, I looked a little old anyway. I would sneak into the back of the room and the guy kind of knew me after a while. And I would just stand there against the back wall, just watching this incredible show. That was, you know, at the time, certainly the best thing I'd ever seen on a stage. Yes. I couldn't believe Tina Turner. I couldn't believe the Iquettes. Yeah. I'd never seen anything. I'd never heard anything like that before. It was magnificent. And in my memory, it was it was so tight and so good, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, it made you kind of want to give up show business. It was that <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 
because you never him at PJ's. It was a it was an amazing event. Yeah. And you knew you couldn't be that good ever or ever compete on that level. This was music on a cellular level. They had something different. Yeah. Yeah. Ike Turner was an amazing band arranger. Yeah. Amazing. Those charts were fantastic. And everything built. Everything built. His whole idea was to, you know, get the crowd into a frenzied situation. Mm. This was early on. Yeah, real early, right? Nobody was doing that kind of thing, really. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe some of the, you know, Midwest bands, Wayne Cochran and stuff, they were kind of known for doing that James Brown mm-hmm. sort of thing. But Ike wasn't doing James Brown. He was letting Tina do yeah. the solo for him. And she was uh, jaw-dropping. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you must have really loved that. Uh, between the ages of 15 and 17... I spent many, many hours just mm. looking, <laughs> trying to take it in. I didn't, I didn't necessarily want the soul part of it because I couldn't, I couldn't drum that up from, from Utica, New York. But um, just the show, the showmanship of it and the arrangements, just unbelievably exciting stuff. Well, let's hear a little bit of that right now. There's something on my mind. Won't somebody please, please tell me what's Soon after that, those experiences, did the turtles come to be? Real soon, real yeah. soon after. Okay, uh, great. Well, the the Crossfires took pride in being a band at the time that could cover anybody. We could sound like any top forty record. That's why they paid us to come back to this teen club, mm. the Revelair in Redondo Beach, California. Ooh. 312 South Catalina Avenue. I remember because we used to pass out flyers that had the address on it. You know, come see, come see the crossfires. We're playing with the lively ones, you know, and that was a big show. If you could do a set with the lively ones, you had a, a full <laughs> audience. And it was wonderful. You know, everybody was kind of doing the same music, the same surf songs that were classics. You know, and the lively ones had a few of those classics, and so did the Challengers, and so did the Marauders. I mean, there was a whole bunch of West Coast South Bay bands in Redondo Beach and Huntington Beach that were making a pretty good living, you know, Mm -hmm. playing parties and and, uh, even city events. It was such an all-encompassing California thing, this surf music, until 1964. And then 
the Beatles. We all know what happened then. (laughs) And then Mark and I figured out that we could put our saxophones down for a minute Mm -hmm. and actually sing stuff. Mm, Magic. So we did. We did. We started singing, you know, Beatles stuff. And, uh, Mm. you know, this was before before there was any any movement in in LA toward that sort of sound it was just it was all the beatles for a while yeah it was all british invasion for me the searchers i love the searchers i still mm. love them yeah all you those know, great harmonies fantastic harmonies uh, but all the i loved every band from the era i could defend every single british invasion band mm-hmm. you know i would i would I would go on tirades where I would, you know, get up against other like record people like myself, you yeah. know, and defend like the pretty things. And go, what mm-hmm. do you mean? You don't see that? You don't hear how good <laughs> these guys are? I'm yeah. never talking to you again. Give me my records. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? really, I understand they, that. Yeah. If they didn't get it, they just they didn't have the passion or they weren't ready to take the ride or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody has their own taste, but. You know, it's fun to argue over over songs and songwriters and music. I mean, it, you know, it's fun. It, it it doesn't actually turn into something awful because, you know, it, it just proves how much we love the music, you know. Absolutely right. It's like baseball cards. <laughs> you know, it's one yeah. step above because it's it's still fanaticism. I mean, it's yeah. still being yeah. a fan. You know, if I could wear a shirt that said Beatles, you know, instead of a... a a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey or something. Yeah. And that's, you know, everybody would have worn their hearts on their sleeve. Yeah, I remember but, when the yeah. t-shirts came in there, you know, there were no Beatles t-shirts. There were no t-shirts. It started in England, you know, in like 1971 or something. You're right. But there yeah. was no merchandising. Yeah. yeah. No one had even thought of it. I know. It's crazy. It was, you know, the years before, Donnie Deutsch changed the world. <laughs> Who's that? In marketing. Who's Donnie Deutsch? He's just a Madison Avenue hack. Oh, okay. a political guy, a career molder. <laughs> okay. I just <laughs> remember the T-shirts coming out in 1970, 71 on the King's Road in England. All of a sudden there were T-shirts with bands on them. It was like, what? First, they started with James Dean. I have the original James Dean and then Mickey Mouse. And, stuff. and then they started putting bands on it. And it was just just yeah, right. the first one I saw. I remember exactly. It was Bad Company. Oh, I think cool. I still have the shirt. It was just the written, you know, the writing, the big block yeah. letter logo. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, that's worth a lot of money, theater. Howard. <laughs> what for? You know, you know, all those T-shirts have gone. It's insane what you, you'd pay for all those old T-shirts. It's I mean, I understand, though. I understand that, well, it's all wonderful. that the nostalgia is it's wonderful. Uh, Every now and then I'll still see a T-shirt and I'll just go, oh, I need that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a closet with nothing but T-shirts in it. You know? I just did my finally my own I'm with the band T-shirt. My son designed the logo and it just came out today on my website. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it took a long time. (laughs) Well, everything I've had other deals with other companies, but this is my my first, my very own. I'm very excited. My son designed it. This is lovely. Your own logo, your own imprint. Yes, that's right. Nice going. (laughs) Very good. Well, I think you know that's wonderful. Now's a good time to do it. 
Now's a good time to do everything you ever wanted to do. Yes, right? I agree. I have been. I have been most of my life, really. Um, yeah. But this is a good, this is a good, you know, month to sign up for zipline, you know, classes in Costa Rica. Because so. <laughs> really, so hard. I want to go back to, you know, how did you get your first record deal? Obviously, we're going to have to do two shows, but. No, 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 no. We can not, not with my career. You don't need two shows to, to wrap this up briefly. Beginning and I only have another 20 minutes or something. Okay, I can do this in five. Now. No, you cannot. Not at all. And so your your career is amazing. It's one of the longest ones in rock and roll. Are you kidding me? Well, that's why I think I, I had to retire. The, the weight of my own bio was bringing me down. <laughs> You know, it's so I, funny too. When I go to the when I go to this discography and I start thinking oh, of all the records that we sang background on. Unbelievable. I remember a, a day you invited me to see Bruce Springsteen on stage while you guys sang backups for Hungry Heart, and I was absolutely beside myself. It was one of the great standing on the side of the stage moments. I totally agree. I could do that anytime <laughs> with a Springsteen show to oh, this very day. Oh, oh. He's magnificent. Oh. You know, his command of the room is is unparalleled. I've never unparalleled. seen it. And see, I will fight people who don't like him. I will I will take them to the ground. How if they don't if they don't like him, they don't understand him. They've never been to a show. Yes. They've never they've never stood in an audience when the opening piano strains to jungle oh, land are played and the crowd loses their shit yep me included because yeah, that to me is the highlight of the night i get chills all over i never miss him locally i get chills all over and i weep and i sway with him it's like it's church man it is it yeah. is and the, <laughs> the parishioners in the church of bruce are a lot better than most of the other parishioners i've ever met yes you know, because at least our God, the boss, is a benevolent God. He's not a mean <laughs> bastard who smites people right and left because he doesn't like their attitudes. Exactly. You know, Bruce hears all. You know, I think if you're going to, you know, like George Carlin said, everybody believes in, in, in worshiping somebody different. His personal God was Joe Pesci. He used to pray to Joe Pesci. Why not? As he said. <laughs> So, you know, I just say pick a personal guide and, and make that your guy. Well, you I know? did a lot of that. <laughs> You're talking to the right person here. I absolutely think so. And, and you know the best way to worship most of those people so that they understand that there's love out there for them. Aww. Well, I think that's okay. wonderful. Well, I you know, the, you... the word groupie has always been so maligned and so, you know, I think, you know, but yeah, if you hadn't been so instrumental in kind of creating the term yourself, I would agree. But, you know, I, I think when a lot of people think of groupie, they think of you. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think, you know, it's uh, as Donnie Deutsch, the market genius would say, <laughs> it's, it's just it's it's smart marketing, whether you knew it or not. You know, you were you were selling your name and your likeness and your attitude 
and your experiences and people love that. They do seem to, you know, it's, they're coming around. I get very many less, you know, horror comments and slut comments from people than I used to get, but I still get them. I still get them. From who? From, from real slurs and sluts and whores out there? Who's gonna, I mean, who's going to be? On the, on the, in the, on social media, people on social media. Yep. Listen, despite what anybody says, it is not a TikTok world. Yeah. It's never going to be. No, I agree. I agree. I agree. Something weird is going to happen in, in, in social media to put some sort of halt to a lot of it. It's just a prediction I have. I don't know. It's just something. Well, it is happening, you know, and when they when they take Zuckerberg away in chains, uh, a lot of this will probably go away. <laughs> okay. I'll look forward to that moment. You know, I mean, it's all him. All of his imprints are just toxic, mm. you know, and the idea of that little weasel sitting in an office someplace and getting off surreptitiously still reading everybody's mail is just a little too kinky for me. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not a Facebook guy. I, I do my business on there. You know, it helps me get fans to my tours and stuff like sure. that. Yeah. But if you're not selling something. Yeah, right. You, right. Well, you know, I, I still believe, you know, if you're going to promote a tour, Facebook is the best place to do it. You're going to yeah. reach the most susceptible people. Yeah. And, and I, Instagram, but doesn't he own that too? But, you know, I, yeah, but it, it helps me in my business. Like you said, I mean, I, I am my own everything. I am me. I am my product. I mean, and you know, it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's a, a little overwhelming. Um, I know you're, you're spinning a lot of plates at the same time, lady. It's a, yes. you know, I don't know how you even do it or why you even do it. I have to, I have to pay my bills. Yeah. yeah, but a lot of that stuff really isn't about bill paying. A lot of it you do because you just like people. Well, you yeah, I do. Isolate yourself. You'd rather be out there relating to somebody than than being online and, and trying. Yes, that's that's to very true. Very true. And now I'm going to go back to the turtles. Okay, how did you get your first record deal? We were playing at the Revelero Club in Redondo Beach, our normal weekly gig. We played there on Fridays and most times on Saturday nights as well. Mm-hmm. And we were doing all the hits all the time. And uh, we had gone as a group uh, to see uh, the birds at Zero's. Mm, God, I saw them there. I'd get fake ID. It was unbelievable. <laughs> And it was life-changing, certainly for us, for me, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we had done folk songs and, and sung Dylan and stuff all through high school and had a little folk group. And there was a girl and we had striped shirts and it was ridiculous. <laughs> but before the Beatles, that, that's what passed for collegiate kind of entertainment. Mm-hmm. It was music peter paul and mary and the kingston trio and stuff so that's the kind of music we had played and when we went and saw this new band the birds that cbs had signed and everybody was making a big deal out of it oh columbia signed the birds who the hell are the birds well these greenwich village guys okay so knowing that they were folkies and that was interesting to us we went down there 
and saw for the first time these guys on stage. And it was it was wonderful. They were the band that everybody remembers the birds to be. Jim again, proudly, not Roger, you know, was was at the helm. David Crosby, angelic, just one of the sweetest voices still that I've ever heard. What a what a sound and the McGuinn twelve string was unbelievable. I know it was stunning. The the harmonies and Gene Clark, who a lot of people forget, incredible harmonies. No man, I know. You know there <laughs> should be there should be statues in every city in America to Chris Hillman, as far as I'm concerned. You would love to hear you say that. Well, I I truly believe it. I I, I don't only believe that his vocals are mesmerizing and he had a find of he found a way of of finding notes inside a chord that nobody in rock and roll had ever done before certainly i never heard that and you know he was one of my main true loves and i've never heard anyone say that and there's nobody ever ever who's who's been a better bass player yeah. he certainly is the best bass player that i think i've ever seen certainly on Stage. Fantastic. I mean, he he truly for me invented a whole different way of playing bass. He made the bass his lead instrument, even more than McCartney ever did. You what? know, it told the story. Uh, his bass was as melodic as the lead melody was being sung. It was mm -hmm. a fantastic counterpoint. Uh, and I've never heard anybody do That's it better. The bass and tambourine man, the opening of the baseline is true it is true it's just how would you even think of that and then yeah. how would you how would you be able to carry it through the song so that the opening made sense all the way through the entire record you know and it wasn't that wasn't the only i mean he's every baseline that the guy ever came up with to me is genius you listen to eight miles high or five D. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like Felix up anything off of the Younger Than Yesterday album. Love the album. I oh, saw it many times. Uh, I was a, a huge fan, of course. <laughs> God, of course. But it was so. <laughs> that record is so. I don't know. L.A. The Renaissance Fair stuff. Yes. Just, oh. It was so beautiful. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was it was kind of the last of the innocence. It was goodbye to the innocence especially Chris's stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Gene, I think, had already said goodbye to the innocents long before that point. <laughs> love well, I love Gene, you know, but but he wasn't anything but innocent. Yeah, he was always good to me. They were always great to me, all of them, even David Crosby. He, he used to, yeah, I think so. I yeah, think, he, that, you know, David gets a bad oh, rap because he's <laughs> candid. Yes, very candid. <laughs> I like candid. You know, yeah, I, I, I want someone to say, I fucking hate your ass, rather than, uh huh. Well, let's hear a little bit of the birds. Turn, 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 turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. 
the birds. Okay, so the next day, Al Nichol, the lead guitar player, goes down to Guitar Center and starts looking at, of course, Rick and Backer 12 strings. Mm-hmm. Well, they're a little pricey. And we're a garage band from Westchester, California. <laughs> so yeah. Al comes home from the Guitar Center with a, a Dan Electro 12-string guitar, uh, which is cool, but it has a totally different sound than a Rickenbacker. Mm-hmm. So we weren't really able to knock off the bird stuff very easily. We had to kind of invent new stuff on our own. Fortunately or not, I was totally enamored at the time of Cullen Blundstone. I loved the vocals that the zombies were able to do, juxtaposing Cullen's vocals against a hard rock track because he was so soft and effortless and innocent sounding. Mm-hmm. And I love that, you know, and I, what I wanted to do, my whole thing was I wanted to take the soft sounding verses and, of course, juxtapose them with the hard chorus, you know, and that's what it ain't me, babe, was. Yeah. But that's what Happy Together was, too. Um, that's what my entire career was, really, was uh, taking those softer songs yeah, yeah. and then a hard chorus to drive it home. And maybe that was the, the flower power formula. I really don't know. Uh, one of the things that Mr. Zappa really mm. claimed to have hated, but really didn't, was the entire flower power movement. You know, it gave him strength to hear that stuff because he, you know, it made him laugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he laughed about it. Hey, punk, where are you going with that flower in your hand? Is one of my favorite lyrics of all time. It is. <laughs> it is. Frank didn't Frank didn't need to be subtle. You know, <laughs> subtlety was not Frank's pot of tea, you know. So he talk about a guy who spoke his mind publicly and privately. Oh yeah. But people remember, love to hear what Frank had to say. I remember you telling me one time, a long time ago, that um even though Frank was a really hard taskmaster, you're really glad that you worked with him. Because it gave you more, uh, I don't know, stick to or whatever term it was. It gave me more discipline. I'll tell discipline. you that. Yeah, yeah discipline. Uh, That's what it was. <laughs> well, Frank was, you know, Jeff Simmons, I think, said it best of anybody. Uh, when asked, you know, well, what's it like working with Frank? And Jeff famously said, and I'll quote him because I love you, Jeff. He huh. said, uh, well, you've got your armies. And you got your rock bands. And this is what happens when you combine the two. <laughs> wow. That is well, pretty, I was right. I pretty mean, Frank had us rehearsing, um, especially for that first tour when we were new to the band. We would be rehearsing 12, 15 hours a day in that studio behind the office. <laughs> I came to some of those rehearsals and it yeah, was, they were difficult. Uh, yeah. they were difficult, especially for Mark and for me, because yeah. we were pot smokers. Yes. And Frank notoriously was not a big fan. I think the only time he smoked pot was with you guys, right? I think that's probably true. Oh, it is. And he said he didn't feel it. Yeah, he felt it. He felt it enough. <laughs> He felt it enough instead of leaving us alone to say, 
hey, maybe before you leave, uh, call downstairs for me and have them send up, you know, three of those cream de mint things. Really? Well, I, you know, I, I'm sort of in it now and I don't want, well, Frank, why don't you just, you know, we'll stay. Why don't you just stay with us and we'll just, we'll smoke until the sun comes up. And Frankie couldn't, I think in his mind, he kind of wanted to do it, but his voice in the back of his head wasn't Fred Savage, it was Gail. <laughs> <laughs> and Gail said, you touch that shit and I'm going to pound your ass. I'll, I'll, I'll whip a, an iron across your head while you're sleeping. Oh my God. Well, uh, you know, Gail... Gail knew what she demanded from a domestic relationship. And often Frank could not read. Well, she her. didn't get most of it. I mean, she did not get she did not. her demands <clears throat> because he was on his own trajectory and he was going to get it done. Absolutely. But, but it's not like she fell into all of this, you know, blithely. She, you know, she knew exactly what Frank was and who he was before she even said hi to him for the first time, you know, <laughs> and, and she had a plan every step of the way for how she was going to treat her relationship with Frank. She was a very um, organized lady. Well, you know, we were very good friends. I do know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're very good friends and I miss her a lot. She, she, they were both mentors to me. I know. And I was young, you know, I was young and I was their governess and everything and lived there off and on for years. And, and I feel like I was mentored by them in a lot so of ways. I, luckily, um, <laughs> not by Gail necessarily, but certainly by Frank. And I think that's, that's what Frank brought to the table for a lot of his bands, yeah. uh, especially the first group. Who was such a, a bunch of lost boys. Wow. What a bunch of characters. Yeah, <laughs> there were characters, but just because they had gray hairs and beards and stuff didn't mean that they weren't just floundering in their lives, you know, and not that Frank took advantage of them, but Frank knew where the stories would come from and they would come from Motorhead. They oh. would come from Buck and Buzz and they would come from the, the, People that Frank, you know, surrounded himself with all these great storytellers. Mm -hmm. He loved a good story. He, he would loved a good story. That's how the GTOs got together. He loved our stories. And he said, you got to create them into songs, you know. And that, you know, that he, that was so far ahead to put girls in a studio at that time. It's, you know, he was very far, very forward thinking in a lot of ways. I'm telling you, I think, you know, in many, many ways, uh, his genius has not even been approached yet by anybody agreed agreed you know and all of this stuff oh they're re-releasing 200 motels you know frank's seminal okay we all know the 200 motels was a wonderful happy party movie you know it, it's not clockwork orange it was not meant to be you know well, it was the first on video was the first on video it has that distinction it'll yeah. be in the guinness book of world records yeah. Yep. For that, and probably for the most times, you know, anyone has ever said that many X-rated <laughs> words in a movie without any sort of sexual ending at all. We sure had fun, though. 
It was great. A couple of weeks. Oh, my God. That was a world unto itself, right? I mean. It was a whirlwind. I I didn't know where I was for a couple of weeks. I'm really shocked that everybody, myself included, remembered the lines. I mean, we weren't actors. Yeah. Yeah. And you you had a lot of lines. We did, both of us. And a lot of the songs that were that were new to us that we had to do live for that yeah. movie. But I yeah. love that. I love Confession. The best part of that movie for me, the tea, the tea trolley. <laughs> the tea trolley. I, I waited daily for that Tim tea, tea <laughs> trolley woman to show up with her little scones and shit. That yeah. was awesome. Because as if my memory serves, it wasn't like a big eating time during that movie. There no, wasn't a lot we of food had dinner to- after, but that was about it. Yeah, <laughs> late, late dinner after or something. Yeah. yeah, something that passed for dinner in that hotel lobby. Yes, <laughs> but it was a wonderful whirlwind there that two weeks because I, oh, you know, oh, I so- remember all of it vividly. It's not like it was a blur to me. And Ringo, man, it was Ringo for God's sake, and yeah. we were all just hanging out with him like he was not a Beatle. It was just so cool. Well, he wasn't for a minute. He was Richie. Yeah, for he a... was. that's true. It was, he was cool. Frank Zappa for a couple of weeks. Oh my God! What yeah, thing that's just... true. Well, I think playing Frank Zappa did a number on Ringo. I want to hear a little piece of Two Hundred Motels. I stuffed three pair of socks and a bar of beauty soap down the front of my pants. That, that playing Frank did a little number on Ringo. Yeah. And that, that even around his, uh, even around the people that worked for him, he started acting a little crazy when he was. Ooh. I didn't uh, I'm, I'm not saying he internalized the part like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis or something. <laughs> the king of internalizing. <laughs> yeah. That oh man, my God! I compare every actor to him. Liver. <laughs> I bet his liver looks a lot like John Phillips. <laughs> oh, really? Not like Phillips' liver, just like John. Oh, okay. I don't quite know what you mean by that. Well, I- <laughs> poor John. I mean, he had a liver replacement late in life. Yes. And uh, and he went crazy with it. I yeah, bet. I he just said, I'm just going to, I'm getting a new one of these and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. <laughs> yeah. The very next, the week after he had that transplant done, we actually did a show 
with the quote new unquote mamas and papas right uh, with spanky and with uh, laura mckenzie phillips and uh, it was an interesting situation and john was just he was doing lines and he was drinking jack daniels oh, just said, what the hell are you doing man he said why not i've got the liver of a 12 year old girl oh. <laughs> whoa but it only lasted for like another minute i know i know oh dear well you know what howard it's, our time is actually up and i'm so bummed but will you come back i am back will, will you come back on the show and talk to me i will anytime because we you know we just barely i mean we should do three shows really right Let's not be no <laughs> i mean it i mean there's so darn much i want to ask you know Pamela, if you did three shows of this you wouldn't have a fan left in the universe <laughs> stop it i just want to hear so much more i want to hear it you know i want to know how how you're you know i i believe that you guys propelled you sunny and Cher, and the birds made dylan as important as he became by sharing his well don't ask bob because bob will, will go who's that again no. oh yeah <laughs> those strange boys from the west coast yeah i mean you know he knows but it's it's weird the first <laughs> time i met him uh he was already passed out so oh well he's still kicking and he's still performing i know it's yeah really i never wonderful. missed him never miss it's really him. wonderful he is the keith richards of oh folk yeah music. oh yeah <laughs> well i think we should end with the turtles doing dylan how's that i love that idea pamela okay. you're a great hostess thank you oh thank you howard i enjoyed it so much and we'll definitely do it again so i'm going to be bugging you okay bug me anytime kid okay see you later bye bye Wasn't that something, you know, he has so much more to say. I'm going to ask Howard to come back on because, you know, we barely touched his history. You know, he's, he's very happy to promote other bands and other people, but he himself is such a, a powerful entity. So I'm going to have him back. So thank you, Howard Kalen, for being my guest. Um, I am Pamela DeBar. You are listening to a Pantheon podcast, Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. And I want to tell you about something really fun. I have new t-shirts. My darling son, Nick, uh, designed a logo for me finally, my very own logo, my very own t-shirts, not uh, connected with uh, an, another entity. And uh, there I'm with the band and they're really fabulous. And they're at my website, PamelaDebarOfficial.com, where you can get 
all kinds of other goodies from me. So uh, I hope you enjoy my website and I hope you enjoyed my podcast and I'll see you kids soon. You've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts find us on facebook at facebook.com backslash pantheon podcasts rock and roll archaeology on instagram and pantheon pods on twitter